I can still remember the incredible despair I felt when I opened the syllabus for the first time. I had just registered for a doctoral seminar on 20th century mainline Christianity in America. And doctoral seminars tend to be rather extreme in the amount of reading they require, uh, but this seminar in particular took it to an exponential degree. And compounding my problem was just not the number of pages that I was supposed to read, is that this was a required course for my discipline. And I looked at all of these books, all these articles, all these collections, and thought to myself, there is no way I'm going to be able to get through all of this reading. And so I set the document aside to kind of go back to my ordinary ministerial job. And sometime later in the day, I picked up the syllabus because it was quite long. And I made it all the way to the end. And with eagerness and happiness, I read tips for reading at the very end of the syllabus. And the, the tip was, this is a reading intensive course. And so students would do well to develop the skill of a thick skim. And then he proceeded to articulate what a thick skim meant. But what it meant to me was not every page I was going to be held accountable for. I didn't have to read every one of the words on these thousands upon thousands of pages. I had professorial license to skip pages along the way. And I've often wondered ever since that syllabus encounter if many Christians aren't the same way when it comes to God's Word. Focusing on the simple, central arguments of truth skipping over the stuff that doesn't seem to matter, giving our earnest, good, honest attention to the fundamental matters of the faith, saying all that extraneous material we can just not bother with. Uh, but kids, what you always want to remember, children, when we read God's Word, is that God says every word He's breathed out for our good. And so what that means is, even when we come to a passage today, like a collection of final greetings, to not know what's in this passage is to be an incomplete Christian. That we need every sentence of Scripture if we're truly going to be one of Christ's disciples. And so oftentimes it seems like when people read Paul's letters, there are parts that they tend to skip, and probably the most pertinent part that they tend to skip, or most common part, would be the greetings at the end. Paul's greetings are often full of this long list of names that we know nothing about often full of truths or commands he's already said in the main body of the letter. So we wonder, what do we need the repetition for? But I hope you'll see this morning as we look at these simple final greetings to Titus that what Paul is giving us in some ways is a, is a philosophy of ministry in miniature. What does ordinary, everyday faithfulness look like for Christians? Or maybe a different kind of question the text is, having us ask is what kind of culture should be true in a congregation? What kind of spiritual air should be our ordinary breath as a body of Jesus Christ? And what we're going to see this morning is the simple theme of our verses is healthy Christians are eager to extend the gospel. Healthy Christians, mature Christians, growing Christians, faithful Christians, they're eager eager to extend the gospel. And maybe you want to then ask the question, well, how do you know? How can you examine such eagerness? Well, we're going to see that in a few different parts, and the first of which is Paul is going to tell us, be eager in generosity. Be eager in generosity. 
And before you get to verse 12, you just need to know where we left off last week. We looked at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 3, and there Paul told us that a healthy church is unified on the centrality of Christ and the godliness which flows from his gospel. And so if you just scan your eyes through the text, verse 8 told us, be devoted to what is useful. Verse 9 says, don't be distracted by what is useless. And verse 10 and 11, he gave very strong, blunt words. Here's how you're to deal with divisive people in the congregation. And the point there at the very end of the letter, if you think about it negatively, was, was pretty simple. It's this. If Christians, if a church cannot rally around the essential centrality of Jesus Christ and is undone by conflict and division, that church can never be a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Flip it around a little bit more positively. A healthy church is unified on Jesus Christ and is unified on the godliness which flows from the gospel. Such a church is in a place to be a warm and winsome witness to the world. And so Paul's uh, taking all of this truth he's walked out along the way and now is just speaking to Titus quite directly. Notice what he says, be eager in generosity, verse 12. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Now, what do you know about these two men? Artemis and Tychicus. Well, if you know nothing about Artemis, you're in good company, because you shouldn't. This is the only time he shows up in all the Bible. You know nothing about Artemis, other than he must have been a good pastor. He is one that Paul was considering sending to Crete to relieve Titus. If you don't know anything about Tychicus, well, you should know much more about Tychicus. He's actually rather famous in the New Testament. I enjoy uh, reading presidential biographies. I, I've told you this before. And uh, one thing that you note when you read these stories of presidents in years gone by is how they often had very close advisors, counselors, that were very well known in their time. But in the subsequent passage of the presidency and the decades that came along, these men are just forgotten to history. And so yesterday, I just finished up a book on Harry Truman and President, Truman, President Truman's closest advisor is probably the Secretary of State, a man named Dean Acheson. Now, I assume in a room of this size, some of you know the name Dean Acheson. Many of you, maybe even most of you, have no clue about Dean Acheson. It's kind of be the same way with this man, Tychicus. He was well known throughout the churches in the first century. So zealous was he for Jesus Christ, so faithful was he with the gospel. We find out in Ephesians, it was Tychicus who took the letter there to the church at Ephesus. We found out in Colossians, it was Tychicus who took the letter there to the church at Colossae. And then you find out at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's final letter, final letter in his life, that he wants to see Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, one time before Paul dies. And so he says, I'm going to send a pastor to relieve you in Ephesus so you can come and see me before I die in Roman incarceration. And who does he send? Tychicus. And here he is, wanting to relieve Titus of his gospel duties there on the island of Crete, wanting to send something of a gospel relief corps so Titus can visit Paul. And who is he considering sending? Tychicus. And perhaps maybe that should encourage us that God uses ordinary people along the ways and significance in their own days, in their own years, but they're forgotten to history. And that's okay. Because Christ Jesus, the Lord of history, he's never forgotten. Writing down our names for those to celebrate and remember. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, notice what he says. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided 
to winter there. The language of do your best, depending on your translation, it might be translated, make haste, hurry along the way. And so some of you parents may have a keen understanding of hurry. Perhaps even on the Lord's Day morning as you're shouting to your kids in another room, hurry, make haste, because we don't want to be late for church. And here's Paul saying, Titus, hurry, make haste when Artemis or Tychicus shows up. I want you to come visit me in Nicopolis. And if you're anything like me, when you see an ancient city like Nicopolis, you want to find something out about its original geography. Uh, what was the road that maybe Titus would have traveled on or the route that he would have gone from Crete to Nicopolis? Where was Nicopolis in the Roman Empire? And so I turned to this commentator earlier this week who's uh, one of the best-known English commentators on the New Testament in the last 50 years trying to answer these questions. What do we need to know about Nicopolis? And he gave me three words of counsel. Consult a map. And so, <laughs> consult a map. I did. Nicopolis, northwest side of the Greek peninsula. It's about 250 miles away from Crete. If you want to put that in our kind of Texas geographical terms, it's essentially the distance and kind of the compass directions between Houston and Dallas. It was a good place, a seafaring port, to winter as the winds and the waters were often difficult at that time to travel in the winter. So Paul was going to rest in the winter before he resumed his missionary labors uh, along the way. And so it was a great place to have this kind of gospel meeting, this apostolic conference between Paul and Titus. And you'll notice that Paul himself isn't even in Nicopolis because he says, meet me there, not meet me here. So Paul himself is traveling down probably from somewhere in Macedonia at this time. And Nicopolis is the meeting point along the way. And Titus is with haste and hurry to make his way north. But also, notice verse 13, with haste and hurry, he's to do his best to spend speed, Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So what do you know about Zenus, the lawyer? What do you know about Apollos? Just like Artemis and Tychicus, we know nothing about one and quite a bit about the other. We know nothing about Zenus. A lot of commentators I read this week had rather jovial marks to say that clearly there is such a thing as a Christian lawyer because this is the only lawyer that is a believer in Christ ever mentioned in Scripture, if you actually didn't know that. Zenus is probably an expert in the Roman law, maybe the Jewish law, but probably the Roman law, something of, a, of an ancient lawyer. But we do know something much more about Apollos. Do you know what it is? His story shows up at the end of Acts chapter 18. He was a Jew from Alexandria. He was mighty in his proclamation of Jesus Christ. He was a master of sacred eloquence. If the first century church had celebrity preachers, Apollos was probably legitimately at the very top of that list. A visit from Apollos to a first century church was the celebrity pastor has come to town. Revival is on the way because Apollos is soon to come to our congregation. But you'll notice, whereas Artemis or Tychicus, they're to stay on Crete. Zenos and Apollos, they're just passing through along the way. And Paul says to Titus, make sure that not just that you speed them on the way, see that they lack nothing. Because kids, you need to remember, travel in the first century world was much more dangerous 
and difficult uh, than it is today. You didn't have hotels on every side of the highway, restaurants surrounding the hotel parking lot, travel centers for restroom breaks and refreshment and all kinds of goods that you needed. First century preachers, first century traveling missionaries depended, relied almost exclusively on local churches and local Christians to continue on in their gospel labors. That's where they got their money. That's where they got their food. It's where they got their clothes. It's where they got their supplies. And what Paul is telling Titus here is, Zenos and Apollos are going somewhere. We don't know where they're going. Uh, we do know that they'd be going somewhere for the mission of Jesus Christ. And make sure, Titus, that you abound in such generosity that they leave lacking nothing. The gospel goes forth to the nations on the generosity of God's people. Missionaries go to the nations on the abundant sacrificial giving of churches, ordinary Christians. So I do hope that you are praying for a Redeemer to be a church that is full of generosity, full of sacrificial giving for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I hope you do know that we can only do that insofar as you yourself in your home and in your life are giving sacrificially to the life of the church, abounding in generosity with what God has given to you uh, you need to war against what is actually much more common in Christianity than you might realize. A church member is calling for their church to be abundant in generosity, but that very church member having such a hard time giving a regular tithe to the church, uh, demanding something of their church that they can't even model in their own life. Or to understand the, the reality of Jesus Christ as this supreme sacrifice of God's love, the abundant eternal generosity of God that's given to us, that 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 says, in light of this, what kind of people ought we to be in our generosity because of what God has given to us in His inexpressible gift, His Son, Jesus Christ? So Christians are eager to extend the gospel, meaning they are eager in generosity to propel the gospel to the nations. And number two, what Paul's going to tell us here is that they're eager in spirituality. Five years ago, a theologian named Michael Horton I wrote a popular level book called Ordinary, uh, which was subtitled A Sustainable Faith in a Radical and Restless World. And he said a couple of things that's most pertinent even to what comes in verse 14 of our text. He says, we've drifted from the true focus of God's activity in the world that's not to be found in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary, the everyday. Also, the gospel makes us extrospective, turning our gaze upward to God in ordinary faith, and outward to our neighbor in ordinary love. I mean, it's truth that can find biblical foundations and even proof texts in Titus as a whole, because notice what Paul emphasizes to Titus yet again in verse 14. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, if you're new to Titus, if you've only been with us a couple of weeks, I want to show you again or maybe for the first time, the centrality of good works to the Christian life according to this letter. If you glance down at verse 16 of chapter 1, a key characteristic of the false teachers, they're unfit for every good work. If you glance down and back at chapter 2, verse 14, we find out that Jesus has redeemed a people for himself who would be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, we're to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 8. Paul says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful 
to devote themselves to good works. It's almost the verbatim command we get now, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. His point in the gospel is so clear in this letter. People who believe the good news of Jesus Christ are people who are growing in good works toward one another, toward their neighbor, eager to extend Christian charity and Christian generosity within their spirituality in Jesus Christ. And so I would imagine for the vast majority of you in the room, tomorrow is indeed a holiday. Christians learning to be devoted to good works ask questions like this. How can I do good to someone today, even on my holiday? How can I bless someone with a promise of Scripture, an encouragement of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone in the church that I can bear their burden in Christian love, seeing them grow in affection and trust in Jesus Christ? Is there anyone weeping, sorrowful on this holiday that I might be able to comfort? I wonder how often you think about, as you rise in the morning, what good can I do to someone today? Paul is saying, let us learn that lesson to devote ourselves to good work. And don't, don't just pass over what he says at the beginning of verse 14. Let our people, our people. As best we can tell, Paul planted the church in Crete and never came back to Crete. Yet he says what? Our people. Not your people. Not the believers in Ephesus, um, um, the believers in Crete. Or the faithful congregations there on that Greek island? Our people. Have you ever noticed as the gospel changes pronouns in the Christian life? Some of you might need to change pronouns. It's not them. It's not they. In Jesus Christ, what is it? It's us. It's we. It's our. Their griefs are your griefs in Jesus Christ. Their celebrations are your joys in Jesus Christ. And learning the lesson of devotion to good works, you'll notice has two particular reasons, two purposes. First, the, the purpose of provision. Verse 14 continues, and let them learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. Again, it's a clear call to generosity, cases of urgent need that in that time would have been something like food and clothing and shelter. There were no government programs in the Roman Empire to help the poor on the streets and the poor in the church. It belonged to Christians to meet that need financially, physically, and materially, abounding in good works for this purpose of provision, but also this purpose, you'll notice the end of verse 14, the purpose of production and not be unfruitful. So follow Paul's logic there with those two purposes. Those who have small generosity have a shriveled spirituality. Those who have small fruit in good works have small devotion to Jesus Christ. Those who are not learning the lesson of what it means to do good and be a blessing to others are not walking in the fruits of the Spirit. That's why it's so important for the Christian life to adorn the gospel. He will say back in chapter 2, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10, that we don't only commend the gospel in our good works and protect the gospel in our good works, but we beautify the gospel in our good works. Christians are eager in their generosity. They're eager in their spirituality to extend the gospel. And the third thing you want to see from verse 15 is that they're eager in their hospitality. 
I remember a few years ago reading a study that a church growth expert, arguably the most notable church growth expert in America, uh, published on what are the reasons why first-time guests do not return to the church they just visited. What did they see? What did they experience? What did they hear that led them not to want to come back? And he was so stunned at the number one answer being so overwhelming in its force that he subsequently put a blog post together on it. And the blog post within a few weeks was well over a million hits. And he later on said that I, you never know in the blogosphere when you're going to hit a nerve. So what is it, according to his studies, that causes people to not return to a church after experiencing it for the first time? What is it more often than not that causes them that? It's having a meet and greet time. Forcing me to stand and meet and greet people I don't know. Now, I'm not trying to take a stance on whether or not a formal meet and greet time is good in the church. I'm certainly wanting to say Paul doesn't have that in mind when his final greetings. He is talking about this grace-filled life of hospitality that belongs to God's people as they're always greeting one another. Because look at what he says in verse 15. All you who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. So see, he both is commissioning greetings. Those who are with me, they're greeting you, Titus. But also he's commanding greetings from Titus. Greet those who love us in the faith. And let's think about that qualifier, if you will, in the end of the command, greet those who love us in the faith. Is Paul saying we ought not to be hospitable to those who don't love us in the faith? Oh, that's certainly not true. You can go to any number of places in Paul's writings where he commends and commands hospitality. But what he's saying there is, I know that there are people on Crete who oppose me. I know that there are people on Crete who are promoting false teaching in the life of the church. I know that there are people in the congregation who are dividing it unnecessarily. I know that there are people around you that are emphasizing wrongly secondary peripheral matters. Greet those who love us in the faith. So there's an attention here once again to unity in the church. Those who love the teaching of the truth. Greet those who love us in the faith. And so spirituality, devotion to Christ, isn't it often seen in our greeting? Our eagerness to show hospitality. This open heart that opens the door that leads to an open seat at the table for those that need it, for those that don't have it. I wonder if your heart for hospitality is this kind of eager. Scholars have often mentioned how Paul's letters often conform to the ordinary norms of ancient letter writing, except in a few notable ways. And one of them is how Paul ends his letters it was common at this time in the first century in the Greek world to end your letters with a benediction of sorts, but it often would sound like this, health be with you. In a world where people weren't sure to live another year, where the mortality rate was high, that life wasn't long lived, health be with you was the primary concern. But you see where Paul breaks from that kind of expectation and tradition at the end? Five words to conclude the letter to Titus, grace be with you. Material concerns, certainly not out of his mind, but certainly not at the forefront of his mind. A Christian life is the one of grace from beginning, middle to end. You see that in Titus. Look back to chapter 1, verse 4. He began with what? Grace be with you. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness. Chapter 3, verse 7, how have we been justified? By the grace of Jesus Christ. So what does he leave Titus with? A benediction of grace. Grace be with you all as you greet one another in Jesus Christ. You might be in here today and are not a Christian. Perhaps you're a person who tends to be lonely. Uh, You find few friends, genuine relationships in this world, and you're maybe wondering, who's going to greet me? Who's going to welcome me? And I want you to know the good news of the gospel is that you will find an eternal greeting in the Father's love in Jesus Christ, if you would turn from your sin and trust in Him. That there is a time coming when you will meet the Father, and He'll say something to you. If you receive Him now, He won't reject you then. But if you reject Him now, He will not receive you then. Who's going to greet you at the last day? Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, are those that God will greet for all eternity, welcoming them in to his eternal, heavenly wedding banquet of everlasting rest and righteousness. Who's going to greet you when Christ returns? Grace be with you all. Healthy Christians are they're eager to extend the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ in their generosity, in their spirituality, and in their hospitality. I... And now, once again, as the fall season has begun, coaching kids' soccer teams throughout the week, and, and one of the teams that two of my boys are on that I'm coaching has had a major roster turnover due to people moving away from the area. And as often happens, sadly, it feels like you're starting all over again uh, with a new season and teaching kids essentials and fundamentals of the game. And so in order to try to impress upon the children, those fundamentals and essentials will walk through the training session, tell them what to expect. We'll go through what we do in the training session, then I'll bring them back together in a huddle at the end and just try to remind them. Here's what we learned today. Here's the the simple skill that we are trying to get better at today. We're just reviewing what was most important. And what I want to do here at the end of Titus is do the exact same thing with the whole letter. As we walk away from this letter, some of you recognize never to hear it preached through ever again. Uh, What lessons might you need to learn from this letter? I've just got four, four final lessons as we conclude not just this sermon but our study as a whole. Number one, church health is the aim. Church health is the aim. What should a healthy congregation or any congregation shoot for in their life together? Aim at in their congregational convictions. Paul uses the word often in this letter of sound. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word, hygienic. The aim of a church is its maturity. The aim of a church is its humility before the Lord. So I do hope that you are praying for Redeemer, Presbyterian Church, to be a church that grows. Make sure you're understanding the biblical priorities of growth. It's not buildings or bodies, monies or members, but Christ-likeness, godliness that comes through the Spirit. Church health is the aim. Number two, qualified leaders are essential. He began there as the matter of first importance, didn't he, in verse 5 of chapter 1. Titus, I've got unfinished business. Appoint leaders there at Crete who will lead the church to health. 
We saw, didn't we, at the end of chapter 1, how he painted this picture of false teachers, and it's as though in verse 6 through 9, he said, appoint the exact opposite of that. And you can do this later on this week in meditating on the truth. What is the essential uh, characteristics? What are the essential qualifications that must be true of a healthy leader? Just underscore the word must in verse 6 through 9. It's not a man that we hope will become this. It's not a man that we hope through his office-bearing ministry will increase in this. It's a man who already is this. He must be above reproach. He must manifest unusual godliness in the congregation. He must affirm and hold to the trustworthy word as he was taught. He must be able to teach and refute sound doctrine. He must be this. So it's why we've said a couple of times in the series, perhaps, uh, perhaps it's most important for you who are members here, appointing, installing, nominating, Elders, deacons, is one of the most important things you'll ever do in this church, protecting the gospel for generations through leaders. Church health is the aim. Qualified leaders are essential. Number three, godliness belongs with the gospel. I won't tarry long here because it's everywhere. It really is the theme of Titus. Live in a way that beautifies the truth of Jesus Christ. Godliness commends the gospel. It protects the gospel. Godliness belongs with the gospel. And you have to understand Paul's logic, particularly in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The reason why holiness ought to be a central passion in the life of Christ's church. It is a reason why Jesus died on the cross at Calvary. He redeemed the people from all lawlessness. God's sovereign love that saves sinners that sent His Son to die on the cross was so that His people might be holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Fourthly, finally, Jesus Christ is the focus. It's quite striking if you look back at verse 12. Paul would send this letter to Titus. Titus, I don't know, could read through it in what? Eight minutes? Nine minutes? However long it takes him to read it. Verse 5 says, Titus, appoint godly leaders and learn all these lessons along the way. Then he gets to verse 12 of chapter 3. Do your best to hurry up and leave Crete and come see me in Nicopolis. And you wonder, is Titus going to have enough time to do all of this? So I encourage you to say this. It's not as much for Titus as it is for the generations of Christians that would follow Titus there on Crete. To know what belongs to a healthy church. To know the centrality of Jesus Christ in any church's ministry. We focused on that in the last few weeks. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, insist on these things. I am genuinely concerned that our insistence be correct, that our focus be right, that our concentration be faithful, steering us away from secondary matters that genuinely won't unite a church, genuinely won't rally a church, but helping us through the word and spirit lift our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ, which alone is the power that can unify a people as diverse as us, as strange and odd as us. Jesus Christ is the focus for any church. And so that's why we are eager to extend Jesus Christ in our life together through our generosity, spirituality, and hospitality. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. It's abiding goodness to us for final greetings that do reveal much of your heart for how we would live in glory unto you. Lord, give us that humility and maturity that you require of us. Lift our minds to Jesus Christ. Help us to be transfixed upon him. 
that he indeed might be the bedrock, the foundation, the anchor for our souls as we seek to see him extended in our life and also in our community and to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together as we do want to...